What's going on, people, people? This is Christian Ishkumar, and I'm a producer for the show you're tuning into, From a People Perspective. This is a podcast about fascinating people, how they got to where they are, and where they're going, all from the lens of HR, recruitment, and operations. This show is hosted by Martin Hawk. Before getting started with today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Thanks to Wealth Simple for Work, providing group RRSP and benefit programs for employers to offer, Spring Law, providing virtual support for your smallest and largest employment law issues, Humi, a beautiful and easy-to-use HRIS platform, and the Leadership Agency, providing award-winning recruitment for startups using innovative approaches. We've got a great episode ahead of us and hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, it's Martin Hawk and it is another episode of From a People Perspective. And today I have a very special guest, Allison Kaiser, uh, who I will let herself introduce herself uh in in proper order we were just talking you know doing the pre-podcast prep chat and i was like you've probably done more podcasts than i've recorded podcasts i feel like (laughs) you are the most podcasted hr talent person in the industry um and i'm grateful that you've taken some time to spend with me today in this podcast. Um, so I would, my, my knowledge and the whole point of this whole conversation is to get to know you a little bit better, learn some stuff along the way, hear some funny stories. And my, my snippet of knowing who you are as a person is very limited, but I'm always just blown away, uh, from a candidate experience perspective, next level from, uh, Oh my goodness, they're scaling. How did Allison help scale those companies to the size of those companies and all that fun stuff. Um, there's, there's a million places we can double click on. We're going to, um, welcome to the show. Um, yeah. Glad to have you here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. What a wonderful introduction. I feel so honored. Um, and yeah, my name is Allison. I've been in, in talent, uh, for a very long time. My current role is the head of talent at Golden Ventures, which is really the preeminent pre-seed and seed stage fund, uh, Canadian-based fund, although we do have investments all across North America. And the focus is really investing in the best founders as early as possible. So uh, my days are spent working with with founders and other talent people, uh, generally at early stages, to help them build the foundations to be successful in talent in the future. Awesome. And yeah, you've been in talent for a long time um, and you've got a definitely a really interesting perspective. I want to double click on. I definitely, because you've been on so many podcasts, if you're like, Martin, you just need to listen to this podcast with this person and you've told that story, definitely we'll, we'll save that. So if you've got, you know, snippets of, of your career lessons or learnings that you want to double click on, we can, we can go there. Uh, before we jump into that, and before, you know, I ask you to regale us with your, your life story, uh, <laughs> can, we're, we're going to do like some icebreakers. So let's just say you're unpacking, you know, dusty boxes uh, in an attic or something and they're yours and it's full of CDs. Um, 
which ones are hardest for you to throw out? Oh my gosh, what a good and kind of intimate question. Uh, my first, my first concert ever was No Doubt. So I think Tragic Kingdom has special place in my heart. The most listened to album probably that I've ever owned is Jagged Little Pell by Alanis Morissette. So, and I, I think my favorite album that's withstood the test of time, uh, other than something really you know classic that predates my existence, is probably The Miseducation of Lauren Hell. So. Those would be those would be the three for me. Nice, nice. All solid albums. Um, I have definitely had Tragic Kingdom. I think I bought two copies of Tragic Kingdom, so lots to talk about there. Um, oh yeah. Um, no, great, great album. Nineties to the that that was a nineties album, right? It was. Hundred percent. Yeah. Definitely nineties. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible with years and dates. Okay. <laughs> like all good things, nineties. <laughs> <laughs> we can agree on that. We're off off to a good start. Um, On you're on a road trip, and you're stopping off in a small town. What is the first thing on your to do list? The best place to eat. Always, I travel for food. I live to eat. I want to go to that little local place that will give me the the local flavor of what's great, and you know the place everyone looks forward to going. So food food related always as a general rule. <laughs> okay, what's what's a recent like not maybe not recent but like what's something that stands out in your mind of like if you're in this really small town or even if you're in the big city like food wise like what's what's a go to for you. I love a locally owned place, place that's been around for a long time. So I'm in New York City right now, actually, uh, working out of Soho Works. And such a, a perfect example is I, I went to Balthazar last night with my partner. He'd never been there. And it's, been, it's an institution, right? It's been around forever. It's not the flashiest place or the newest place or the coolest place, but it's just timeless place with a great ambiance and great food and energy that's been around forever. And uh, those are the places I, I love to go to. And in a, a smaller town, it's the locally owned, right? The, the local restaurant or the place where everyone has their memories they love going to. Like that's the vibe I, I really live for. Not much of a, a chain person in general. Although if you haven't been to Sugarfish and you come to New York, there are a number of locations now for good reason. It is the best sushi that I have ever had. Sugarfish. Sugarfish. Nice, nice. I've not Do heard it. of it, so I'm, I'm, it's on the list now. It's on the list. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Final one. You just finished an exhausting week at work. I feel like you probably had a few of those, uh, at least one or two in your career. <laughs> um, what? How do you recharge? How do I recharge? It, it kind of depends. Um, I feel like I'm not one to just sit around and do nothing. I love to get outside. I love to travel. A weekend trip is always good. Spending time with with really close friends and family where I'm distracted from thinking about the stress of the next week and just kind of comfortable and and relaxing. And yeah, I'll double click on food. Great, great food. Taking time to cook something that takes all day on a Sunday is one of my favorite pastimes. just normal stuff. Normal nice. stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Something that takes all day on a Sunday. That's interesting. Like food wise. Yeah. Okay. Something that slow cooks, the whole house smells good. 
and you yeah. can just relax and look forward to it. That's really the best. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Cool. No, no. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. Um, I think a lot of people can kind of like, if, if they've forgotten that they enjoyed those things, it's probably a good reminder if they're listening. So, um, I do miss like a, a big, like, okay, it's going to take four hours for us to figure out how to make this thing. Let's do it. It's like a weird team effort job type thing. So that's, yeah, it doesn't even have to be complicated. It can be something that just cooks low and slow, you know, like a chili stew, you know, something, I don't know, piece of meat or I don't know, something, something that you're just anticipating all day. Mm. Um, <laughs> Sunday activity. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So let's dive into, um, you know, how you got into, you know, recruitment overall, I guess. Um, that's kind of like taken up a, a big chunk of your history. Um, but kind of just starting from the very beginning, like, you know, where, what did you get into when you first got into, you know, the working world? Um, what did you think you were going to, what did you think you were going to be doing, you know, for a long period of time? And then kind of walk, walk me through the evolution of Allison. Yeah, it's an interesting story and one I, I actually don't talk about frequently, but I, I went to school here in New York. I went to NYU. I went to Stern. I studied finance. Uh, I graduated in 2008, the year of the market crashed, and I'd spent a few summers working in finance and ultimately ended up in management consulting, did that for a few years, and then decided to move back to Toronto, spent some time at Ogilvy actually working in advertising and then left and did my own thing for a little bit. So I always had a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to be in business and I hadn't quite figured out exactly what I really, really loved. I liked the strategic element of consulting. And ultimately when I, I graduated, I triple majored. I did management, marketing and international business. And so what ended up happening is I sent my resume to a recruiter when I determined I was ready to go back in-house somewhere after having been on my own for a few years. And she reached out to me and said, I actually think you'd be a good recruiter. You understand the industry from multiple facets. You've worked on strategic branding projects and worked in advertising and you've done your own thing for a little bit. Have you ever considered it? And I'm still very good friends with, with this person to this day, actually. And we went through uh, a really, really good interview process. She gave me an exercise where I had to recruit on a few roles and come back with profiles and talk through how I'd approach solving the problem. And I, I ended up joining this small boutique agency, heavily focused on marketing, advertising, creative, digital comms kinds of roles, and built a practice there uh, around tech and product and engineering that hadn't existed previously, which was really fun. And one of my clients uh, ended up moving over to Ritual and had a good experience with me and uh, reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in coming in-house. And that was really the beginning of my experience as an in-house operator. And that was almost 10 years ago at this point, I want to say at least eight years ago. I'm aging myself. But um, yeah, so it, it wasn't something that I kind of considered as a a career approach when I was in school, I sort of fell into it. And I think that's common for a lot of recruiters, but having done it, and especially in my first in-house role at Ritual, I was working on a lot of international expansion and there was a lot of strategy work there, very operational, 
sales focused as well, obviously dealing with candidates and such a natural progression from my consulting experience, uh, more than any other role that, that uh, I'd had since. And um, definitely feel like I, I found the right thing for me. Awesome. Um, I want to double click a bit on like the international piece only because we haven't talked too much about that on the podcast and I feel like it's very relevant now given the way things are going in the global economy and I'm just curious so I definitely want to kind of like zoom back out to your your career side of things Um, but if we could double click on like the global expansion piece like before you had entered into that role so you first off you pivoted from being in the advertising world, marketing world. Uh, and then you got into recruitment. Someone, you know, said, hey, you'd be good at this, right? Which is mm-hmm. kind of recruitment good. for that world. So I had the subject matter expertise. Right. Yeah. 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 And that was the sort of the, the, what you were bringing. So you could do it and you would do it well because you understood the space, right? So mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. talking to candidates, that makes, that makes complete sense. And same concept for myself. I, I'd spent 12 years in the industrial space and got, the weird call saying, Hey, do you want to, you know, recruit? Right. So <laughs> there is no, you don't go to school for recruiting seems to be the theme. Right. Yeah. Um, now in terms of like, had you done, like, what was your experience working on international global projects prior to ritual? It was negligible, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was interesting. <laughs> like when I joined ritual was in a number of cities, Toronto, Chicago, New York, Boston. I still remember <laughs> Chicago, New York, Boston, DC, SF. And I joined and did LA, Houston, Minneapolis, Dallas, Atlanta was sort of the first year that I was there. And that was really, it's interesting. The experience kind of built upon itself. So first it was North American markets that were really not tech hubs and figuring out how to strategize around that then layering on top of it, the UK, the first international market, and then Australia in the second year. So layering on top of that, the idea of operationally, how do we work around time zones? What makes sense? Um, what information do we need to go into a new market? How do you approach looking at competitive space? How do you approach a market where there's no employer branding and people can't even download the app on the app store or solving some of those problems? And then I moved into Hong Kong, Amsterdam, Germany, and some smaller markets, which had a combination of problem-solving <laughs> from from both of those, like a, a non-core market and a global market. At one point, I was working across seven time zones. And then in my final year there, uh, layered on all of the engineering and really running the entire operation. So being able to maintain that international piece and then also looking at the, the tech org and being 360. So they were very good at layering on responsibility in a way that made sense. And the trajectory, it didn't feel... Um, that abrasive, but knowing what I know now in hindsight, I did some crazy things that most sane people wouldn't do, like working in all of those time zones, like waking up at 3 a.m. Because what other options do you have? You have to talk to people. You just kind of wake up and do it. Um, and I think part of that stemmed from working in a startup at a time when there was scarcity. There just weren't many startups and people were really excited to be a part of them. And there was so much energy um, in the room and, and the whole team was involved in doing some of these, these really scrappy things. And I, I just don't know if culture is really, really the same now. 
but yeah. overall positive, positive experience. And so, yeah, I had no foundation. We were just kind of figuring it out as, as we went. Wild, wild. So that's like classic, you know, classic startup experience where it's like, Hey, we're doing this thing. Does anybody in the room have experience doing it? No, but everybody's scrappy enough and we trust everyone enough to, to go and do it. I guess knowing what you know now, and you obviously have more extensive experience in, in global recruiting beyond just your time with Ritual, but um, knowing what you know now and knowing that a lot of folks might be in a position where, hey, I've got to recruit internationally. I've never done that before. What are some of the, the lessons like I've just gone through that on a smaller scale myself as an example. And there's, we just opened up, you know, an entity in Colombia, and it's taken a long time and I've learned a lot of lessons. I'm just curious to hear like, what are your lessons from, from what you've, you've taken away from just all the international, like that's seven time zones, Hong Kong, completely different continents. That's wild. So yeah. what, what's your, <laughs> What's your go-to, like, these are the five things you need to know. It doesn't have to be five, but you get my point. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are, there are a few lessons that, that um, I, I think have really stuck with me that I've shared with others. The first is to figure out a way to evaluate fit in markets that look and feel very different. So one of the big adjustments we made was this shift from thinking about culture to thinking about values. Because culture can look very different based on market, but values can be aligned where you care about the same things. You're showing up for the same reason. You care about mission. You find people that can persevere and are resourceful, people that care about team. Those things can be global and removing the bias of this person looks, feels, and sounds like me as part of a process is really important when you're considering internationalization. Um, and, and recognizing the difference in culture that are going to make you successful, right? And you want that local market knowledge. So I think that's part of it. Uh, another piece is just doing an incredible amount of research as much as you can in advance. I had a whole playbook I put together where I would look at cultural customs. I would reach out to folks and say, we're launching this market. Will you chat with me? I'll send you a gift card, have a coffee with me and doing research in advance, looking at all the competitors in this space, figuring out operationally what time zones are going to work or what time slots are going to make sense for the candidate and making it really easy for them when I'm reaching out to them to schedule in to say, we're going to be having calls within this time. Please provide, you know, times within these hours, um, looking at where you can even find candidates on every market, even uses LinkedIn, like Germany uses Zing primarily and so on. So going in really well researched and recognizing you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to have to iterate. And then another thing I, I thought was really valuable ultimately is even if you're a company that doesn't have a lot of money to invest in agencies and for the most part, you want to do everything in-house, finding a partner that's local that can at least help you at the beginning by sending you candidates from a good market and giving you a little bit of like advisory help can make a lot of sense and make things a lot easier for you down the line. Even if you only fill one role with them and then you take things on on your own moving forward having that, that local partnership can, can really drive value. So it tends to be money well spent. Um, th those are some of the, the kind of core lessons I, I could talk about this. No, of, of course. No, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, it, how did you, how did you balance like seven time zones? How did you balance, you know, Allison time? Like that's <laughs> I might, the, the thought going through my head was like, how many hours did you sleep? How much do you sleep? Like, that's wild. And like, 
uh, that must have been tough. And, and I imagine like the culture at that time was like, everybody's all on board. Everybody's all on hands on deck. So there's a, an adrenaline there, but I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, how you balance things. Yeah, it's a good question. And there are a couple of, of things that play here. I mean, ultimately, I did a few things. There was a time that I shifted my hours up and I started at three and ended at three. So I would leave early and I just kind of acclimated to it. Lots of people do global international roles and have to work kind of crazy hours. And this was just one of those things. And then there, there was a six month period where I went to London, which was a much more once we launched the market. So 4 a.m. Eastern is 9 a.m. in London is 4 p.m. in Hong Kong. So that made a lot more sense for me. And I was able to chat with Asia in the morning and then Europe after and then North America in the afternoon. Um, and that was more conducive to success. But at the end of the day, there really is no shortcut for like hard work and sometimes doing things that aren't ideal. And I was at a time in my career where I was really hungry to learn and I thought that it would be worth it and the benefits from a learning and career perspective were, were going to make it worth it. And, and I believe that it was like problem solving everything on my own, being a first mover to do some of that stuff in market. And um, yeah, just the things I've been able to accomplish since, since doing that and the reputation I built for being this maybe a little bit crazy, but hardworking and, and committed person made it worth it. And, and it was tough. It was tough, but I look back on it fondly as like one of the best experiences of my life. And again, we were all in it together. Everyone was waking up early to talk to people. Um, we were all getting in, in the room and talking about it. People were traveling nonstop and it, it just culturally was so strong. And part of that is because we hired such good people mm. that, uh, that I'm able to look back on it fondly and with exhaustion. <laughs> no it's yeah. i mean it sounds like you're no stranger to that level of dedication just in general like triple major in the first place like yeah that's <laughs> so this isn't this isn't that's more your tempo just in general um mm -hmm. the and and i agree with you fully on the like there's moments in your career or opportunities in your career where at the end of the day if you're not learning something then you're probably going to be bored and move on anyways so if you're like oh my goodness the next six to 12 months at this company is going to be better than any education I could pay for. I'm actually getting paid to learn. Why not get the most out of it? Cause totally. folks, folks do, you know, put in their nine to five and then they, they, they go get an, you know, an after hours education and that's still the same amount of time. Why not, why not just put it all into one thing and focus? So. That's totally. And culture, culture has changed a bit since then. I don't mm -hmm. know if it would be as acceptable. Maybe it would. Maybe it depends on the company and the role. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I, I think it's at the end of the day, it's most important to self-reflect and determine what is most important for you, what your goals are. And for me, I really wanted to learn and I wanted to fast track my career and lead and to, you know, to, to lead. Um, be very challenging and exhausting, especially being the first person. Other people may value other things. They may value balance. They may value salary based on you know having a family, other financial, and that's completely fine as well. But taking the time to just really understand what's motivating you and work toward it is a very helpful exercise. And then you can appreciate the experience you're having, even when it's hard. Gotcha. Um, I'm I'm not sure at what point. Um, in your career. Um, and I'd be curious to kind of like get a, an idea of it, but 
there's this interesting part, and you've obviously made that transition, and you've obviously evolved, and in, in, we want to touch on the, the VC side of things as well, because that's a really cool story as well. But there's this point in people's careers where they go from being the IC or the individual contributor to being you know, the person doing the individual contributing as well, as well as leading a team. Um, curious, like at what point in your career you kind of saw that because you're obviously have led teams and, and, and are leading teams. So I'm just curious to understand like what you learned from that experience or what were some of the challenges you went through as you were kind of going through that personal evolution from like IC to leader kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I I'm actually don't manage anymore for what it's worth being in VC. I'm, I'm mentoring. Uh, but I, I'm not actually people managing anymore. I think it's very important if there's the one lesson I can get from it in perspective, it's that the goal of being a manager is not to delegate things to other people that you don't want to do anymore. It's to teach people what you know how to do really well and scale yourself out of a job. And that's the way to drive loyalty and foster a great team dynamic is it's about coaching and leading, not making your life easier. A success as a manager is making someone really successful. And so when you're at a point where you really are out of bandwidth, out of capacity, looking at the place where you spend most of your time, right? The thing that's most strenuous and finding someone that you can train and coach to do that really well is the way I try to think about people management. Um, and so the best example I can give is I started working with someone uh, about probably three, maybe a little bit more than three years ago. And I was her first manager working in tech and taught her a lot of what I knew and then brought her with me when I moved to uh, my second in-house startup. I know she's also in a VC training and coaching people and she's really incredible and better than me in many ways at what she does. And that for me as a manager is the biggest success that I look back on and I'm so proud of. And it was having her sit in with me and learn everything that I knew and getting to the point where in my mind, she actually could, could do my job. Um, I, I think in many ways, that's the best way to think about it. So sometimes I chat with people. I've had a conversation with someone recently who's like, I don't like sourcing. I want to bring someone onto the team that's going to be a sourcing expert. And I sort of said to her, I think really you should learn though, because how are you going to unblock this person if they're struggling? Maybe you don't have to be an expert, but it's not about just filling your gaps. It's about really establishing a foundation. Um, and I, I recognize that at a certain point, that's not possible. And you're going to have to diversify the skill set on the team. CEOs don't know how to do every single role, but when you're owning a function, learning as much as you can or knowing what you're coaching around as a manager is probably a positive lens to, to maintain. 100%. No, no. Um, and so as you know, you, you went from global talent acquisition and, and now you've jumped into the world of VC, it looks like. Uh, well, it doesn't look like it is. It, that, that is what you're doing. Um, yeah. How does, if somebody wants to make that jump or if, uh, I'm curious to kind of get whatever you're comfortable sharing from a behind the scenes perspective. I get asked this question all the time and it's such an interesting one because I hadn't really been seeking a role in VC and I think it's very challenging to say, I want to do this, I'm going to go out and, and make it happen, particularly in the venture environment that is Canada, which is not a massive environment. I mean, I ended up in BC. I was introduced. I knew the Golden team because they were really a major investor early in Ritual. So they knew about Ritual, knew about me, and I knew about them. Uh, and I'd been 
connected to them for that reason and then started working with them as a consultant, basically fractionally supporting on the side. My uh, my boss at the time was very comfortable with it and that got his permission. He's like, this is a great learning opportunity for you. So I was working with them for a while and it kind of got to the point where they said the feedback on you is really positive, but everyone just says, we want more of you. It would be great if you were more readily available, but we're convinced that you could add value. And so we formulated a role together of what an operating partner role could look like. And I'm the first one that, that they they run on the only one in the fund right now it's actually only I think eight people that are at golden full-time so it's not like they posted something and said we want this person it was something that evolved over time um and was quite unique building a function around my skill set and what they perceived as value adding and then testing against it so it might be quite different in the U.S. but certainly the way I landed here was something that evolved over time. It took a very long time and it was very unique. The best advice I can give to everyone is take every conversation, meet as many people as you can, never say no to relationships, to helping people because those relationships could end up landing you in one of these unique situations that isn't necessarily publicly available just based on your reputation network and the value you've been able to drive and helping people at the end of the day leads to opportunity. That's, that's the best advice I can give. No, it's it's fair because it is. It does seem like a difficult sort of industry to sort of break into, right? And unless you're taking the route of sort of like analyst or you know, and and that's a whole different career path, anyway. So from from a people people perspective, there's like how do you how do you become a head of talent that advises portfolio companies? Might be something that that is on on people's mind. And what I heard. And, and would be cool to double click on a little bit is just a sense of reputation like that. Right. And I, and I'm not asking this question to like, like, Oh geez, Martin, I don't want to like talk about like, <laughs> myself and like pump my own tires here, but it's more of like knowing, having the self-awareness that reputation is how a lot of things happen. Once you get to a certain point, like I feel like there's this point in people's careers where like you're lucky enough to go beyond, hey, can you send me your resume? Right. Right. It it, it is funny. It's a kind of a running joke with the fund because they always say they were trying to recruit me for a year, and that they did it because I was basically already operating in the function because I knew a bunch of the founders and I would help them, and they weren't paying me. And just I'm someone that if someone reached out, um, I I would help. And it's not always financial. It, every time I did that, it was a learning opportunity for me, and so. When people come to me and they say, I want to be a consultant, it's like, can, do the job until you can do it well and then ask to be paid for it. Same as if you want a promotion internally, do that job until it's, you know, there's no question that you're already operating in that function and at that level and then you get the promotion, that kind of thing. Um, it, it's advice I give frequently and uh, I, I don't really think there's a better way around it. It's, it is, it's reputation and experience and it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing, but um when you have enough experience, people start reaching out to you. Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. Cool. Uh, I've got a few more questions here. I also want to um, give you a chance to kind of like dive in or, or talk about anything that that's front and center on your mind. So the the, the last question I'll, I'll finish off here with is sort of like, like, what's what's on your plate right now? What's the what's the thing not necessarily keeping you up at night? Hopefully, but what What's what's the next biggest challenge for you that you're kind of working on and, and what's next for you, basically? 
There are a couple of things that are really top of mind right now. The first is just given the talent environment, things are, are so different. I mean, we're coming from a situation where a year ago, everyone was focused on growth. And now it's not that people aren't hiring. In fact, given the fact that we're in early stage funds, there definitely is hiring happening. It's just much more intentional and much more limited. So instead of hiring 50 people, maybe the Porco is going to hire three or four people. And it's incredibly important that they're the right people and that the money is spent properly and that the salary is reasonable. Like just the frame of reference has shifted. So making sure that I'm advising around that appropriately and also going from circumstance where no one was really on market and I was lucky to be referred someone fantastic to be able to disseminate the port codes to a situation where I have access to such incredible talent that's interested in going early stage that historically wouldn't have been and changing how I operate as a result of that because I don't have the bandwidth to talk to 50 amazing people every week. And strategizing around the best way to support the portfolio companies given the current environment is something I'm, I'm really working on. Um, so, so that's one piece of, of my brain. Mm. The other is just when I'm actually working with the portfolio companies themselves, the biggest thing I'm trying to solve for with them and the thing I, I see come up repeatedly is this idea that their issue is not having the right candidate and teaching and coaching. I'm sure every talent person that's listening to this is going to say, oh, of course, this is a big <laughs> issue. But having people understand that getting the right candidate is just 2% of the overall talent and hiring function. It's understanding what you really are looking for up front. Do you have a brief? Have you really put a lot of thought into what the right profile is? If it's a role you've never hired for before, have you gone out into market and spoken to a number of people to understand what exists in the market and what's appropriate? And just being able to identify when you have the right person in front of you building an interview process that tests for that appropriately and with enough speed? Have you built a candidate experience that's going to be positive, that people are going to want to work with you? Do you have a great way of talking about your cultures? you know how to close them? And then also just this idea of who the right person is for us. I've been talking to founders repeatedly that, that speak to their ability to sell candidates or that they've sold people in the past and are dealing with significant churn. And I can't think of a single conversation I've had where it wasn't pulling them back to understanding it's really not about selling, it's about matchmaking. So being able to really decipher what it is you're looking for and how to evaluate that so you can identify the right person for you that's a good fit and is going to stay as opposed to this idea of getting someone that's top tier on paper but not really a good fit for where you are in terms of, of stage and cultural longevity. Um, so that exercise is when I keep going through repeatedly and figuring out the right way to disseminate that information broadly in a way that scalable is important. And that, that really is the foundation of hiring. So most of my conversations start with someone saying, I just can't find the right candidate. And by the end, it's like, do you have the right employer brand? Do you know what you're looking for? Do you know how to, and everything that is what a talent function really is that I, I don't know if people necessarily understand or recognize. Yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, definitely, definitely. It sounds like you're sort of like, acting as a missionary for all the companies, like spreading the <laughs> good word of, of the, of the truth that you've identified and like the good, the, you know, the, all the best practices and like figuring out a way to like scale your, your strategies and your brain in a way that supports all the, the port codes and uh, the, all the companies in your portfolio. Yeah. Um, I guess um, I said no more questions. I don't know if you, if you're, if you're good for time here, but um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the other thing that you just kind of said earlier on that kind of prompted one thing is like definitely a really interesting time in terms of the market, right? 
and there's a million questions that you could ask in terms of uh, you know what's going on in the market right now but from a comp perspective I think there's this interesting idea that like everybody's had to change their strategy in terms of and comps not the only thing obviously but everybody's had to like change how they hire because things have been so competitive from a compensation perspective what's your like crystal ball take on what's going to happen if if you were to put money on it like what do you think is going to you know there's a lot of changes in the market a lot of aspects of the economy that are are difficult to predict but like what are you seeing and and what do you think is going to happen it's so hard to say and <laughs> i you know i i struggle with answering this but i think at the end of the day really great people are going to find work and everyone needs to expectations set around comp like comp went up really fast um really high it just it did and it's not sustainable money is more expensive now and people just need to understand that if companies don't exist no one's employed and people need to recognize it's not about their personal performance it's not it's not personal if a raise is not on the table right now it's really about the survival of the company that they're working in and everyone just needs to kind of expectation and expectation set and adjust around that and if they do they shouldn't have a problem finding something great if they're if they're strong because through these times innovation comes and there will be lots of great new ideas and opportunities to build it just might not be at a comp level that they become accustomed to and uh, there will be some adjustment there yeah no definitely and i mean it's it's yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot because nobody has a <laughs> okay. nobody has a crystal ball. It's just more like, hey, what do you think is going to happen? Like, there's this big wild thing going on in the market right now. So, um, I mean, it's it's supply and demand, right? Hundred percent. So, there was a supply issue before. It doesn't necessarily exist in the same way now, and things will adjust back down the line. But everyone needs to. It's hard the tension, the dichotomy between like what an employee wants. They say I want to raise, and there's inflation, and a company saying we might not be able to raise money again and we need to focus on burn. And if everyone just communicates well, like most things in life and understands <laughs> each other, right. Doesn't it come down to that uh, and just puts cards on the table. Everyone can probably get to a good place, but there's so much trepidation around it now. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see where things land, but ultimately great people will, will continue to be great and do great things. Hopefully it's wild how important communication is and how little time <laughs> is spent on helping people level up on it. Communication is my, uh, yeah. I, if, if there's one strength, it's, it's figuring out ways to communicate just clearly, effectively, and ultimately being recruited. You're giving people bad news all the time, right? Giving people advice all the time and finding a way to do that in a way that's respectful and maintain the relationship in the long run is 90%. Yeah, no, fully, fully agree. Um, no, this has been... Awesome convo. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, any any final thoughts? Any kind of things uh, going on that that you want to share with the, the listeners or the broader community? Uh, no, I would just say it's it's an interesting time to be in the function and encouraging everyone to keep their heads up, think outside of the box, be resourceful, look at what they're doing, and evaluate whether it's the right thing. Maybe it's the time to do something different. Awesome. No. Thanks again, Allison. Appreciate the time. This is awesome. And that wraps up another episode of From a People Perspective. 
If you learned something today and want to join an amazing Slack community of talented HR, recruitment, and operations professionals, head on over to thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. On there, you can sign up to join the Slack community or get access to a number of incredible resources we've carefully curated on a bounty of relevant topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, policies and procedures, and even employment branding. Again, all this can be viewed at thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. It's completely free and pretty awesome. As well, you can find and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, find us at peoplepeoplegrp and on Instagram at thepeoplepeoplegroup. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.